Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Image, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. This is a sort of live episode you're about to hear now. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to uh, chair an event at the Cambridge Literary Festival with uh, someone I really admire, the, the journalist and novelist John Lanchester, who writes for the London Review of Books, among other things. He was mostly there to promote his latest novel, The Wall, which is a sort of um, post-apocalyptic climate novel about a Britain in which uh, climate change has happened, the world is basically screwed, uh, and Britain's response has been to build a massive wall around the entire island to try and keep foreign people out, and to force young people to spend two years standing guarding that wall. Uh, whenever anyone from the outside world manages to breach the defences, uh, some of those young people are put out to sea in exchange. It's a terrifying uh, novel, in large part because of its banality. It's like, you know, it's a genuinely convincing vision of Britain's future uh, with all this sort of, you know, climate apocalypse um, and, and generational conflict that implies. Um, but it's also terrifying because it's just, it's kind of so normal, just like, you know, it is very clearly recognisable as this country, even though... It's basically a fascist government with, you know, slavery's come back and all this stuff. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. And John Lanchester is sort of uh, a professional hero of mine. So it was really nice to to get to share this event with him. And also, you know, it's really nice when you meet someone who's a bit of a hero and they turn out to be a completely lovely man as well. Uh, so, you know, before we were waiting to go on, we did have a fairly lengthy conversation about, about Game of Thrones and what we expected to happen in the final season, which is now showing, which you can probably tell as you listen to this conversation, because there's about 10 minutes where, where I totally lose control of it, and we just talk about Game of Thrones in front of an entirely baffled audience of, of 60-year-olds who've clearly never seen a single minute of it. Um, I've been meaning to ask... I've been meaning to get John onto the podcast for a while, actually, not just to talk about the war, but also because he's written in the past about the tube, he's written about the housing crisis and capital and so on. So I thought it'd be a really great interviewee. And when when I was uh, invited to chair this event, I just checked, you know, would you mind if we recorded it and put it out as a podcast to save save having the same conversation again? So that's what you're going to hear now. It's just the entirety of our of our conversation uh, at the Cambridge Literary Festival. One other thing before the podcast begins, I should thank the absolutely wonderful Agnes Frimston from the Chatham House podcast Undercurrents, who was kind enough to accompany me to Cambridge and keep me company. I really appreciated the, the support and having a friendly face in the audience. So thank you very much, Agnes. Without any more slightly self-indulgent thank yous, let's go talk to John Lanchester. Well, hello, everyone. Am I audible? Can I be heard? Excellent. That's always a great start to these things. Um, I'm delighted to be here with John Lanchester, who, as I'm sure you know, is the author of five novels, I believe, multiple non-fiction books, uh, former deputy editor of the LRB, and whose current novel is The Wall, which is, uh, how would you describe it? It's a post-environmental catastrophe dystopia sort of thing, but also about modern Britain. Is that reasonable? Well, I'm a bit, always a bit wary about describing it myself because it gets described back to you so much. Um, the, word that, the word that keeps being used is dystopia, which wasn't at mm. all in my mind um, when I wrote it. Um, cli-fi, that's one. <laughs> Near-fi, that's near future. Um, 
haven't had lo-fi or hi-fi or any other <laughs> fi's, but those, those are the main ones that keep coming up. I mean, the thing that really struck me about the book is it is, although it's set in this kind of totally devastated world where like, the entire country has a wall around it, sorry, no spoilers, this is all very much in there on page one, um, it is still very recognisable as this Britain. Like, you know, people do still kind of, you know, young people get pissed on trains to kind of you know, let off steam and go on walking holidays in the Lake District and so on. And it's quite a sort of banal vision of the end of the world in some ways, isn't it? Well, I want, it's a funny thing. If you're writing in an altered reality about... I mean, so the novel, the premise of the novel is about catastrophic climate change, um, meaning a world about four to five degrees centigrade warmer, which unfortunately is, broadly speaking, the one where on course for, according to the International Panel on Climate Change. So the sort of central thread of the IPCC predictions is about 3.7 degrees of warming, plus or minus 2 degrees by the end of the century if we don't change. So we're on course for this catastrophically altered world. And um, I, I sort of um, almost took it... That's why I, I, I haven't used words like dystopia myself, because I, I almost thought of it as being more like a sort of non-fiction, that it's, it's a sort of non-fictional premise. Um, I, I didn't write the IPCC report. You know, um, I sort of took that as the central strand of it. And then the process of writing the book was imagining the consequences, imagining what it would be like, trying to kind of fill in the detail and the texture of what that society was like. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me in this sort of catastrophically altered world is, you know, people, don't, people in a dystopia don't wander around saying, Oh, I feel really dystopian today. How about you? Just yeah, I'm dystopian as well. Yeah, yeah. Nigel's looking incredibly dystopian. You know. um, that you know, the texture of life is still the texture of life. And one of the ironies about Britain, there's a, there's a there's a ranking, there's a, a kind of league, very dark league table, of countries that have historically benefited most from CO2 emissions, on the one hand, correlated against countries least likely to be impacted by CO2 emissions. And the people who have benefited least and will suffer most are the global poor, concentrated around the tropics, because they don't emit much and they're <coughs> going to be hit first. And the country that has historically benefited most and will be impacted least is Britain. So I did want to have recognisable continuities and things that, um, things that people could identify with and recognise in order for the strangeness to seem stranger. You have to have a kind of balance between you know, otherness and peculiarity and things that people recognise. Let's, let's take a step back. What was it that make, made you want to write a, a book about, effectively about climate change and the effect it might have? What was it that made you sort of feel that was a kind of fertile ground for fiction? I, I, in a sense, I didn't want to write it. I, I was part of the way through another book. Um, I was part, part of the way through another novel. Um, and, and still am, uh, exactly the same point I was. Um, and, and this is in early 2016, and I started having... Um, you know, the genesis of the book was very odd for me. It's not like anything else I've ever written. It was from a dream. It was a recurring image I, I had over a series of nights in the kind of liminal state between wake and sleep. And it was about a figure standing guard on a wall, um, on his own, in the cold and the dark, and on the other side of the wall, the, you know, the water lapping on it. Um, and I sort of um, could sort of put myself back in the dream. I can sometimes do that as I'm falling asleep, sort of reimagining being in the same place. So that happened over a series of nights. And then I started wondering who that person was, and then actually quickly realised that's the wrong question, that the, 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 the interesting question was what's happened to the world, because I could tell it was an altered world, and then re realised that actually what I was doing was imagining a, a world after catastrophic climate change. Um, and so the kind of premise of the book arrived completely out of the blue. If you'd said, what's on your mind, I wouldn't have said climate change. Mm. Um, and then the process of writing it was one of, sort of slightly, I suppose, unpacking or unfolding or thinking through what the world would be like. And then, in a sense, the story of the book takes you through the world. The story of the book um, is a sort of exploration of that world and what it's like to live in it. And um, as I say, it was a really odd process for me. I've never had anything like that happen before. You know, um, image, character, world, story. It's a, it was a really strange sequence. I, was, I, was, I met the, um, 
American writer Garth Risk Hulberg uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying his theory is that every writer gets one book from a dream in their career, and I think I just used mine up. <laughs> I have to start looking elsewhere for them, I suppose. Um, well, Terry Pratchett used to talk about this warehouse called mm. Ideas R Us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. Have you done much work on climate change before? Like, is it a long-term interest of yours? Or did kind of the urge to write about that also sort of pop into your head? I, I, did, I wrote a longish thing about it in 2007 um, after one of the IPCC reports and then that big thing, um, I've forgotten the name of the chap who did um, the Brown report on the kind of economics of how it was basically much cheaper as well as morally the right thing to do to start addressing it now, which had no effect at all, of course. But um, So I was on top of the science then, and I have, I have kept sort of abreast of it. Um, but the thing about it is I find it very difficult to think about. It's a very difficult subject mm. to face. It's a very difficult subject to, to sort of make yourself look at. It's a, I often think of that thing La Rochefoucauld, French aphorist, said that... Um, Death, like the sun, cannot be contemplated directly. You can't look straight at it. And I think climate change is a bit like that, I think, for a lot of us. So big, so overwhelming. It seems to offer so little scope for individual agency. You know, it's actually hard to think about. Um, and I think, I think, in a way, what happened, and that's exactly why it came out of a dream, you know, that mm. because, in some sense, I couldn't bear to think about it, and yeah, in another way, it, it sort of was on my mind. It just wasn't on my conscious mind. And that's why, it, um, you know, I sort of squished it down so much, it, it came out this other way. It does sort of feel like one of those topics that, like, a lot of people are deliberately not looking at and kind of quite consciously not thinking about it as much as they probably should be because it is too big and too terrifying to sort of contemplate, you know, effectively the end of the civilization we know. And I think... I completely agree with all of that, and I think there's a particular point about agency. I think we like stories to be about people who do things, you know, mm. and um, no, I don't want to sound all Hollywood and hero's journey and all that, but by and large, we like stories to be about people who make decisions and act and, you know, change the world around them is changed by their actions and they're changed too. And with these huge structural and thematic stories, it's a thing I noticed with my previous book, Capital, that it's actually quite difficult to make stories with a, with a kind of economic context and backdrop because a lot of the scale of the forces are so big don't seem to offer mm. much opportunity for individual agency. There's a thing when I was starting to think about capital, starting to write it, um, I remember hearing on some radio program, it was the wife of a firefighter and he'd just been laid off due to <laughs> austerity, just lost his job. And she was saying... I just want someone to tell, tell me what, we, what did we do wrong? Mm -hmm. What should we have done that was different? What was the mistake that we made? And, and the answer to that was, was nothing. You, you, you didn't make a mistake. There was, there was nothing you could have done differently. You know, because in a sense, it wasn't up to you. You had no agency. And we, we hate hearing that. We hate hearing that actually we have no agency. And I think one of the reasons that climate change has this feeling of being something that we ought to think about but in some sense can't bear to i think it it touches on that it touches on that sense of you know as we even if we did something it would be nothing and i think that does sort of bleed through into the narrative and that your protagonist is not he's not massively active he's sort of sh sort of shunted from place to place things sort of happen to him rather than being a result of his choices. Was that, was that deliberate on your part, or did it just kind of feel like that's how it should No, I, I wanted to write about a world where people didn't have any agency, where the agency had gone. Um, partly because, actually, I think the opposite to what I just said, actually, we do have agency now, just we're not aware of it. Mm. And it's to do with acting collectively and at scale. And this is a world after that. You know, the, the disaster has already happened. And really, the only choice they have left, the only choice they have in the novel is whether to have children or not. Um, which is described in the book as being breeders, and that's one of the ways of getting off the wall, where they have to do this, this two-year term of, in effect, national service, standing guard on the wall. Um, and one of the ways you can get off is by having children, but people don't want to do it, because they don't want to bring children into the world. And um, I was aware of it as I was writing it that that's actually about the only choice they get to make. Mm. And, I mean, I think that's one of the... I mean, we've been talking about it as an environmental book, and it obviously is in terms of the setting, 
but also it's sort of a book about how, how something that is recognizably this country would deal with that kind of crisis. And I wonder if, like, again, you can sort of feel like other events sort of breeding into that, like the sort of Mediterranean migrant crisis seemed to be in there. Maybe there are even echoes of, of Brexit and so on. Was, was this something that you were, you were conscious of, but you were sort of like, were you taking that kind of inspiration from like how the government was dealing with current events? Not consciously, but you know, all sorts of things leak, leak into books while you're writing. Um, and funny enough, it's, I've been more aware of it since I, since I finished. Um, so I've been, th I've been thinking about that, that very question. And um, although the migrant crisis was the thing that had immediately happened, a, a kind of memory that came back strongly was, so I, I, grew up, uh, I grew up in Hong Kong. And my, in the 70s in Hong Kong, a huge thing there was the, um, what's now referred to as the boat people, the people fleeing Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos um, after the end of the Vietnam War. And, that was a huge, huge thing. My last summer in Hong Kong, 1979, I did some volunteer work in one of the camps where the, the they were mainly from Vietnam. They were being held, and, um, and it, you know, it made a, a powerful impression on me for all sorts of reasons. One of them was that you had these children being mm -hmm. held in in a camp, um, and Hong Kong was a society built by refugees. It was built by people who'd fled communist China, and yet attitudes to people fleeing this other um, great crisis were, weren't at all accommodating. It was a very strange dual, dual thing. And all the people who should be well-placed to understand it, actually, there wasn't much empathy. Um, and the other great thing about that is that I remember at the time people saying, but, you know, how can we take, we can't take in thousands of people. We can't take, I mean, it's tens of thousands, actually. It's, no, wait a minute, it's hundreds of thousands. But actually, in fact, that's what the developed world did. You know, we took in 2.5 million mm. 2.5 million boat people were resettled all across the developed world over the course of a decade. And it's not like you hear people say, you know, well, France used to be a great country and then they took in a load of Cambodians and everything went to shit. You know, I mean, it was an entirely successful thing. And it was so strange that that's been forgotten, you know, that, that we've, we've done these things at considerable scale before, not that long ago, and yet it's gone into a sort of amnesiac, maybe it's a Eurocentric mm. thing because it didn't happen in Europe, nobody cares. Um, but that thing about starving, desperate people fleeing for their lives over water um, is that, you know, I've, I've seen that firsthand. Mm. I also wonder whether it's a sort of, these feel like some of those numbers that, are, that sound big, but they're actually quite small. 2.5 million yeah. uh, people resettled isn't a small number. I, I agree it was over a decade, but it's still 250,000 a year. Um, and of course, it, it wouldn't mm. have felt like that if you'd spent the better part of that decade rotting in a camp somewhere, which a lot of them did. Mm. So this, this talk is, is, I think they call it reality and dystopia. Um, and it does feel like looking at your kind of back catalogue, you have spent the last sort of 10, 15 years writing about terrible things happening to the world. I mean, is this a... Is, is this a deliberate choice on your part that you've, are you, that you've kind of feel compelled to look at the that the worst things that can possibly happen? Or is it just that it happens that we've been through this moment in political history where you've kind of looked at the crash and now you're kind of thinking about this stuff? Well, when I, uh, I, it, I think it feels to me largely accidental. When I started writing Capital, I started writing before the crash, I started writing in 2006. And I thought there was a crash coming, but I thought it was going to be a London, a London property thing, mm. you know, a, a property implosion. And that, um, you know, the, that there was a dramatic irony that the readers would know something that the people in the book don't. So that was the, the premise with which I began, that they were having, the people in the book would be oblivious to this thing. And then by, I figured by the time it finished, something would have gone wrong. And it would well, you be. You called that one, right? Anyway. Well, but it, it was much more global and much more systemic mm -hmm. than I thought. I thought it was just, you know, initially when I began it, I thought it was just, you know, a bunch of entitled rich people whose houses had gone down a bit in value and who thought that mm -hmm. was a the worst thing that had ever happened since the dawn of time. Um, and in fact, it did turn out to be something much scarier, much more global, and much more systemic. And in the course of writing it, I realized that if I was writing about, I, I, it didn't make sense to write a novel about London without writing about finance and economics, because it was the force that had changed the city. So I wanted to write about the way things had changed, and realized that I was sort of missing the main driver of it. Because um, it literally determined who the people, who are next door neighbours were, not in a metaphorical way, actually who was living in the next house. That the, the kind of they'd change, and it was because it was to do with the, everyone works in finance. Um, and 
So I started educating myself about that, reading up on it, swatting up on it, and then the credit crunch happened, and then that turned into a, a sort of live topic that in some, in some way, I think, we're still living through the consequences of, unfortunately, you know, decade mm. and a bit later. Um, so, no, it was just, it was, um, uh, luck is the wrong word, uh, chance, happenstance. So I, I think after Capital, you wrote not one but two books on non-fiction books on on financial. I did, yeah. I, I, wrote, I finished a draft of Capital, and by that point, because I knew quite a lot about the um, the the mechanics of what happened in the financial crisis, um, and it, it, it was, it was I, I thought it was interesting, and I thought it a number of things. It's quite interesting to write about because it's structural and system, systematic story, and they're quite. There's a challenge to telling those. So I was interested by that, trying to make it compelling, you know, how, how to do it. Um, and also, I was worried that after I finished the draft of Capital, I knew I was going to have to go back and work, work on it a bit more. And I was worried that because I'd actually found out, I knew a lot more about the realities of the financial crisis, that I had to be careful to kind of quarantine it because um, you can do all sorts of things in fiction. You know, you can really pretty much do anything you want. Um, there's, I think there's a, there's a John Updike novel that kind of proves it, where the cat called Brazil, uh, where the characters change both race and gender halfway through. And that's sort of, in a way, that kind of proves, okay, it's official, you can do whatever you want. Um, but you can't really explain. Explanation kills fiction. Um, and I was aware of the... I, I just thought there was a risk that if I went back and did capital, I'd sort of have a scene where, you know, um, as Nigel looked out the window towards the lights of Canary Wharf gleaming in the distance, he struggled to remember the definition of a collateralized debt obligation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I could sort of feel that was a risk. Um, and so wrote, um, whoops, wrote the non as a way of kind of quarantining it um, and keeping it separate, and then went back and finished capital. And, um, and then after that, I just noticed there was a period where every single thing I was being asked to do journalistically was about explaining something. Usually when some horrible scandal or crime or implosion had happened, you know, things like LIBOR, um, HSBC laundry money for drug dealers, you know, what thing after thing, you know, um, the huge fraud that nearly took down UBS. Um, uh, everything I was asked was about explanation. I just, and I, that made me think that there was just a big gap for that there was too big a gap between the people who understood this stuff and, and the rest of us, and that there was work to be done to try and close the gap. And I was so struck by the fact that we had this sort of genre of popular science where you can't exactly, you know, you can't do quantum mechanics in the comfort and safety of your own kitchen, but actually there's a number of books that will explain it, and biology, molecular biology, all the things like that. But there, there's a kind of bit of a hole in economics and finance, and, and it's, such a, it's so important to the way society works. So I thought... I felt you know, it would be helpful to, to do that, so I wrote a book called How to Speak Money about that, which I now think might have been a waste of time. <laughs> there was this sort of whole rash of books about 20, around 2010 uh, uh, purporting to explain the causes of the credit crunch, and I, I read about four or five of them in quick succession, and the, I really don't retain any information from that. And you know, I, I guess my question here is, is that just me? Or is this genuinely like a, such a, it, it's genuinely difficult to kind of explain and grasp a phenomenon this complicated? Could be a bit of both. Um, <laughs> uh, I think also there's a thing about it. I mean, there's a dispiriting component to, um, to some of that stuff, which is in a way the kind of bigger story, if you step back a bit, the bigger story is, you know, bad people do bad things and get mm. away with it. Repeat. Um, you know, because there is a lot of um, the sort of general, the general popular feeling about that period was that, you know, um, spoiled rich people massively fucked up in, and didn't have to accept any of the consequences and we paid for it. And in some respects are still paying for it. And broadly speaking, that's true. And, I mean, yes, there's lots of um, entertaining detail, if, if you like that kind of thing, but actually the kind of big overall story, we kind of get the gist. Um, and that's what I was sort of saying about 
having mixed feelings about having done more work on that economic thing, that actually in some respects it doesn't necessarily, in terms of explaining the way people live and think and feel, in terms of explaining what's happened in our society since, in terms of explaining the way, where we are now, I think in a way maybe economics is the wrong social science. So what's the it tells you what the insiders think. It tells you what Davos man thinks. Because mm. um, Davos man, they're always sort of going around saying, uh, you've got GDP numbers looking rather good, 2.5. Yeah. Not as good as yours, 2.7. You know, <laughs> everyone in your country must be very happy. You know? And actually it doesn't tell you anything. It just doesn't tell mm. you anything about what's really happening. Well, that's something I found very striking about the kind of official commentary on the state of the economy the last few years. It's like, you can pick and choose to come up with numbers that make it look like everything is fine. But very clearly, if you kind of look at, you know, how people are feeling and how they're actually sort of, you know, how they are responding to this kind of moment, everything is very clearly not fine. So something has gone wrong here. Yeah. But there's not a transmission mechanism to kind of get from that to, to Westminster politics necessarily. Yeah, there's a profound disconnect between that that, yeah, I mean, one of the kind of, one of the, one of the ways of dramatizing. I was very struck by it when when Romney was running against Obama in 2012. He said he'd get his his campaign pledge, his ambitious target was to get American unemployment down to six percent by the end of his four-year term. Actually, it was down to five percent. So that so you think okay, well that means everyone in America must have been very happy and very delighted and would vote for the incumbent party again. Well, no, actually, they did the angriest and maddest and stupidest thing any electorate in the world has ever done ever. Um, you, you know, so there's something about this, as you say, the numbers don't tell you, and the insiders club don't know, and these forces that work, obviously there's no causal link between Trump and Brexit. People don't go into a ballot booth in Wisconsin and say, you know, I hear Sunderland voted leave, I'm, you know, I'm not going to vote for Hillary. Um, but, but the underlying forces at work do look similar, and you see it in, you know, um, everyone was so, you know, hooray Macron, the centrist won, but the fascist party got 35% of the vote. That was rather glossed over. Yeah. And, you know, leaving out things like Auburn, Poland, Italy, Spain, you know, that there's a lot of people feeling blindly furious in ways that the, nu the numbers can't really explain. So you say that Trump voters were not uh, motivated by Brexit, which clearly they weren't, but I was... I was actually over there reporting in the run-up to that election, and it was really striking the number of people I would speak to in, like, in the little restaurants in sort of rural Illinois or something who would want to know what was going on with Brexit. And that did not feel like a good sign for the state of politics in this country that people in, in rural <coughs> Illinois had noticed and were, and were sort of wondering what it meant for them in that way. Yeah, no, you want to be known for Harry Potter and red telephone boxes. <laughs> you don't want to be known for upsurges of violent populist emotion. I mean, going back to the point about, uh, about systems, one of the things that's kind of striking to me, both about capital and about the war, is that there are people who initially look like they are winning from the status quo, but as the story goes on, you sort of realize that they are just a different sort of victim. I mean, without getting into, into spoilers, you can probably kind of guess which characters I'm talking about in each book there. Was that, like, do you think that that's why, is that another reason this stuff is difficult to, to dramatize sometimes? Because, like, the people who should be playing that sort of villain role are also kind of just sort of stuck in the same system, even if they're a bit richer on the way. Well, it's a, it definitely interests me um, in, to show people's, um, to show, you know, um, ethical, I mean, I suppose we all have ethical blinkers on one way or another. And I think Orwell said the hardest thing for people to see is always the thing that's straight in front of their face. Um, and uh, definitely I'm interested in writing about that and writing about people who can't see the reality, the, uh, can't see the realities of the world around them. And Joseph Kavanagh, the ma main character in the, in, in the wall, is someone who doesn't, doesn't see that it's a sort of semi-totalitarian state, doesn't see that it's a form of slave state. Um, and he doesn't, you know, things happen to change his perspective in the course of the book. It's not static. Um, a lot happens to him, and he starts to see things differently. But it, he sees things differently because things happen to him. It's not because he has some dazzling moment of 
ethical realization. It's sort of Im imposed on him. But I think for the most part, we do, we do take on the coloration of the world around us. Mm. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, there's something else I really want to ask about the war, which is a little bit left field. But there is a book in which young people are standing on a wall to protect their country from a group of, sort of demonized outsiders known as the Others. To what extent is Game of Thrones in the mix here? Well, um, it's actually just before we came on stage, John, John's a fellow Game of Thrones fan, and he... Yeah, this is the rest of the session. Outlined, outlined a, a profoundly shocking theory about who's going to end up occupying the Iron Throne. It's, it's too scandalous to <laughs> unload on you, but he's, he comes from a very strange place about this. Um, actually, I will tell you, he thinks it's Sansa. I don't know if there's any Game of Thrones fans here, but that's really shocking. I didn't say I thought it was Sansa. I said that somebody had told me that they thought it was Sansa, and they thought it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, this, this is probably... Well, this is dangerous territory. So, so the people who are laughing at that are literally only going to be thinking about that for the whole rest of the thing. <laughs> um, not, not directly, though. i tell you what. Um, I, 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 saw, I came across him saying that... I know he was very influenced... Well, just for a start, no, is the short answer, because his wall is 800 feet high, and it's made of ice and magic. And my wall's 15 feet high, and it's made of concrete. So they're kind of different. Um, but uh, he, George R. R. Martin has talked about being influenced by Hadrian's Wall. And I've always loved Hadrian's Wall and been very moved by it. And, and there's, an, there's an Auden poem about Hadrian's Wall and about the life of the guards on it and about how far away from home they are. And the funny, interesting thing is that the archaeology, as we know more and more about the actual archaeology of who was on Hadrian's Wall, um, we keep finding basically that that's, that's true. You know, that um, they were, the, the legionaries there were from the equivalent of modern-day Syria, modern-day North Africa, modern-day Belgium. And they must have had this astonishingly strong sense of being right on the limit of the known world, you know, um, gazing into this sort of this sort of terrifying void that we now know today as Scotland, <laughs> you know, wait, waiting for some hairy-ass pick to come charging and lobbing a spear at them. I mean, that sense of being, you know, on the edge of the known, I've always found very, I've found that very evocative. I find it very easy to imagine that, you know, that, that life. And that definitely fueled the wall, the thing about because it's a two-year term and they're at mortal peril all the time they're on the wall. Because if an, one of the others gets over when they're on duty, they're put to sea and become others themselves. I mean, it's a time of immense risk, and they're in this sort of liminal, in-between state. And that definitely did come from a kind of... Um, that, that's always snagged at my imagination, that, that thing about standing on the... You know, your job being to stand on the limit of the world. Just while we're on the topic, are you, are you excited about the last season of Game of Thrones? Is this the thing you're thinking about a lot at the moment? I did warn you. Yes, no, I re-watched it. I re-watched it in training, in preparation. Um, and 
I, it, it's, it's, it was better on a second viewing, I thought. Mm. Um, mainly because I was, uh, was well, not mainly, partly because I was stone cold sober all the way through. Because the first time I'd often take a break in between episodes and cook dinner and then go back. And that might have uh, impaired my judgment. But no, I think it's a, a remarkable thing, actually, to have had. And also, I think crucially, it's, it's like um, my, my sons watch uh, anime and read manga. And uh, a crucial thing about the Japanese model for those forms is that it's a story, whereas the American model is that they're franchises. Right? No one living will see the last Spider-Man film. No human being alive will ever see the last Star Wars film. Those are franchises they are going to go on forever. Whereas the, the other tradition is actually to have a story that comes to an end. And I actually think it's really important for the texture of watching it. You, we know that it's actually gonna, there's going to be a conclusion. Series 8 is going to be the end of it. We will have this complete arc. And I think um, from the point of view of someone who tells stories, it's very interesting to see the, to see the kind of energy and tension and momentum that comes from that. Because quite often when you're watching things, American TV things, you start enjoying it, and then a point comes when you realize they're just going to keep milking it until the dawn of, until, you know, until Ragnarok. It's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And long after it's jumped the shark, long after it's completely terrible, long after, as it were, Meghan Markle has less, left suits, you know, they're still going to be making it. And, and the kind of life drains out of it. And I think, it's, I, I think it's exciting to see something that still has that sense of energy and life and cultural relevance. It's also, people keep talking about it. You know, it gets described as the biggest TV series in the world or whatever, but it kind of... It sort of is in a whole different sense. In, that it is, in a way, it's like a 73-episode movie or yeah. whatever it is. It's not, it's not really a serial at all. It is just one story with, like, umpteen different threads in it. Yeah. Like it is kind of all feeding into that hole. That's it's unusual. A, um, yeah, it is unusual. I mean, the other thing that's unusual about it, the sort of elephant in the room, is actually a dragon. Uh, because, you know, it's... It's interesting that something with a component of fantasy has had such enormous success because if I've, I've, I've had twice, I've twice had this experience actually with television. The first one I remember seeing the first episode of Jamie Oliver and seeing this person to, to oh, what you just lob it in, you chuck it in there, bung a bit of butter on it. And if, and if you shown that to me and something said, okay, A, B, which is it? A. This is universally regarded as completely ridiculous and a low point in the history of broadcasting. B, he's going to go on to be the most famous cook in the world and become richer than God. Which is it? And I, I'm too old to know, you know that the answer, in fact, was B. I would have probably thought, hey, no, 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 people would be making skits about this forever. You know, just didn't see it. And with Game of Thrones, you show me the first episode, which I think is brilliant and has this extraordinary ending, which something you felt you'd never seen on television before. It's about kind of danger to a child. And if you'd said after that, okay, that's going to be a global mega hit, or the HBO have just spent 100 million quid for making a film for you and seven other nerds <laughs> who like that kind of thing. So I remember hearing it, for slightly, you know, Richard Madden, hearing it, his agent had described it to him as Sopranos meets Game of Thrones. Sorry, Sopranos meets Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And I immediately knew I was going to like it. The seven other nerds are going to like it. But I, I, it's interesting that it has struck such a chord. And it's interesting that a lot of people have this sort of binary setting for fantasy, that anything with a kind of fantastical component in it, they just can't watch. And it's interesting that it's overridden that. I, can't fully, I think it's partly to do with the climate thing in it. And I think it's partly to do with the fact that, that everyone is in danger. Mm. And I think it's... I think it's the underlying reasons for it are about precarity, about the fact that it's, no one is safe. I think the idea that a world in which no one is safe is a thing that deeply resonates with this particular moment. It's interesting you mentioned climate again there, because that's something I've always taken from it. The, like, everyone in it is kind of obsessing with this, obsessing about this dynastic war, effectively, when we as the audience know there is a much bigger threat just over there, and it's coming, and it is going to, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it has this sort of climatic component to it, and it's winter is literally coming. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you always read that about being, as being about the climate as well? Or is yeah, I have. I mean, I also think, I think, to get, I mean, to get back to, to get back to my book, you know, one of the, 
reluctantly. We must. I'd rather yeah. talk about Yenfield. But <laughs> one of the things that... If you think that climate change is the greatest existential danger facing humanity, which I do, I'd much rather be able to deny it and think it's not real, but unfortunately I do think that. Um, we have this obligation to do the difficult thing, to face it. And I think that that puts a great, it puts great emphasis on work of the imagination to make it thinkable, to make it bearable, to make it imaginable as a precursor to calling us to act. Mm. Because if we can't think about it, we can't do anything else. We have to be able to face it because everything follows from that. And I think the, the, the thing that's um, particular about it, the thing that's unique about it, is our, um, our societies, our politics, are essentially arranged around interests interests, class, gender, ethnicity, economic interests, whatever. That's, that's, how, that's how our politics works, that we sort of, we call for attention on the basis of our interests, we see each other's interests, and we kind of acknowledge them and reciprocate them. And, and, and you know, it's the sort of the three R's. It's recognition, representation, and rights. Mm -hmm. That's just how our societies work. <laughs> that's how public life works. The thing about climate change, is that the, the people in whose interests we have to act aren't here. They haven't been born yet. Mm. And they're, for the most part, the currently most ignored people in the world. They're the global poor. They're the poor in the global south, who are the ones going to be affected first and wor worst. And so there, I think there's an in incredibly important piece of imaginative work that we have to do to in a sense, imagine them into being and grant them rights and then act on, act on the basis of those rights. And I think there's lots of different ways of doing it. I do think it's present in Game of Thrones. And I think it's a really important, that sort of, I think we, we need to acknowledge that it's a new thing in human history that we're doing that. We're, we're imagining people into being and then being called to action on their behalf. Mm. And that's why I think the kind of imaginative component of thinking about climate change is so important. I mean, something else I found incredibly haunting about the book, to be honest, is the way that Kavanaugh hates his parents. And presumably you mean him to kind of, you know, be typical of the entire generation at that point. Like, you know, the young people who are living in this world absolutely loathe the generation above them for letting it come into being. Despite the fact that if you kind of do the maths, then that generation is probably also not really responsible. They've also been stuck with this by their forebears. I mean, were you kind of thinking about, we do have kind of have these generational tensions now about you know, house prices and Brexit and so on. You know, it's, it's much more part of our politics than it's ever been before. Yeah. But nonetheless, this is kind of, you know, that to, to the power of 100 or something. Well, there's a number of things in the book that I thought of as being things that are in the present stretch forward into the future, and really sort of two main ones, like the sort of economic graph comes up to the present, and then you get dot, dot, dot stretching into the future. And the dot, uh, the two dot, dot, dots were, one is climate, you know, carrying on the way we are, we don't moderate our emissions, and the IPCC forecasts are correct, and that's the premise of the book, that's the world. And the other sort of dot, dot, dot line stretching into the future, I did, did see in terms of trends in our society and politics about turning away from each other, turning our backs on each other, building walls about mm. you know, rising nationalism, rising a kind of feeling about ethno-states and, and us and them and others being who have nothing like us and no claim on us and have nothing in common with us. And in terms of that, dot, dot, that dotted line stretching into the future, one of the things I did think about was this intergenerational thing which is so strongly present in our politics in the moment. I mean, in a way that is, is new, you know, that it's that... Is the, the, the thing about, you know, you mentioned Brexit, and 70% of people under 25 voted to remain, 70% of people over six, 65 voted to leave. And if, if we're in a, like in a confessional booth, and I want to find out how you voted on Brexit, I'm allowed to ask you one question, I'm allowed one piece of data about you, and I can't directly ask you how you voted, but I can ask one thing. The question that tells me with most probability how you voted is how old are you? Mm. That's a new thing in our politics, to be so polarised along lines of age. You know, the Tories' biggest party in the, in the 
country at the last election, if the franchise had been restricted to people under 25, 25 to only 18 to 25 year olds could vote, instead of being the largest party in the country, the Tories wouldn't have won a single seat. Again, that's a, that's a new thing to be polarised to quite that extent. And the thing I imagined with, with the climate um, was that these existing tensions are kind of magnified by, in some of these sort of grimmer versions, some of the IPCC versions, this catastrophic change, a world that's in you know, fundamental respects uninhabitable, unimaginable, um, happened within two generations or one generation. And I think there would be this process of very direct blame. You know, just not just, you know, we inherited a broken world, but no, 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 you broke the world. You and your generation broke the mm -hmm. world. Um, I do, I mean, Kavanaugh is very angry about it, but I do also, you know, take the other half of your point, which is that, you know, it's a novel, you can do things in a novel that you can't do in nonfiction. And I, I did also want it to be clear that, you know, Kavanaugh is completely telling the truth about his perspective, that's how he mm. see it, that's his, that's his experience, but it's not clear that he's been completely fair. I mean, that's the thing that you can have, especially in family arguments, someone says something that's true, but it's not fair. Mm. And I think, you know, whether his poor old per parents sitting there at home and their suburban sofa in the Midlands watching telly, whether they actually had enough agency, whether there's that much they personally could have done, I, I, I do think the reader can kind of see it in a more mixed way than Kavanaugh chooses to. I mean, there's an odd poignancy to the moment where like, he leaves the house and they put on a film about a beach in secret. And you just kind of get this, the parents are not really, so you don't get that much of them, but there's just this very poignant moment of like, you know, they are also mourning for this lost world that they presumably saw the end of. Yeah, and they, I mean, I did think, I mean, I was trying to think what it would be like, and I was thinking you'd have people who thought about the lost world, mourned the lost world, sort of dreamed about it, were still imaginatively, in a sense, inhabiting it, and, and other people who just can't bear to think about it, just don't want to know. And Kavanaugh's very much in the, you know, mm. um, as he says in the book, you know, because there are no beaches left in this world, but, you know, my interest in beaches corresponds to, exactly corresponds to the number of beaches there are left, and there aren't any. And he's just, he's, he's rid of the old world. He doesn't want mm. to think about it. In a moment, I, we should take some questions from the audience. Uh, so be thinking of those, or I will pick on someone. Um, but before we get to that, I should ask, you know, what are you working on now? What's next? Well, I, I, I put aside, I had, you know, when I had this, um, when I started having the recurring dream, I was part of the way through another book. Uh, and so I'm going to, my plan A is to go back and see if it's still alive. I can barely remember anything about it. Um, in some versions, I, I, I keep hoping I'll, I'll go back and look at it and find I have written it. Because <laughs> um, well, that's what I did with my first novel. After I had the idea, I kept thinking I'll get, wake up in the morning and find I have written it. Um, t it tends not to work. Um, uh, and then uh, I, my, it's possible that... Because uh, when I, had a I had quite a long break from Capital when I went off and wrote works about the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first went back to it, I, I had this awful panic moment when I thought, it's so far away from me now, it's not my book anymore, I can't finish it. Um, and actually, in fact, it ended up being quite useful because I could see things quite clearly and quite coldly. Um, so I hope I have a version of that. If it has uh, keeled over and died, and I can't resuscitate it, um, I had, uh, I've got another novel that I'm, I've been thinking about writing, and I've also been writing um, some sort of ghost stories and tales of the uncanny. And uh, I might go, and, and I'm hoping at some point I'll, I'll have written enough of those to have a collection, one way or another. Mm -hmm. And are the same concerns we've been talking about kind of sneaking into those? Or these well, I, someone did say, I was talking, someone asked that question, and then I it said, you know, do, do you regard your work as prophetic and what are you writing next? And I said, blah, 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 ghost stories. And he, and he said, well, oh, well, that would imply that we're all already dead. <laughs> okay. okay, on that note. On that happy note. Who has a question? I believe there is a roving mic, yes. Um, anyone? There's one down here in the front. Oh, there's a lady here and then the gentleman behind. So if you could hold on for the Sorry, mic, just the mic. two seconds, it will be with you. I, I haven't read the book yet, but I was wondering um, what were the challenges for you as a writer in creating this world 
of an altered reality, as you describe it? Um, I, I, I saw it as um, a thing about unpacking a premise, you know, sort of seeing what the consequences would be. Um, so there was a lot of then what, or then what, and then what, and what would that be like, and how would they feel about that, and what would the consequences of that be. And that was an unusual pre process for me. Um, there was less um, you know, imagination in the sense of making another thing up. And, and in some respects, it was almost more like non-fiction in terms of trying to kind of follow a thread of thought through to the end. Um, I, what the, the thing about, because it's, it's a narrated book, um, and the thing about a book where there's someone telling you the story, um, I've always said it's any, any work of fiction, there's sort of triple, there's a triple question. Who, what's the story? Who's telling the story? And how is the story told? And, and you have to solve all three of those. Um, and when, it, when it's spoken by someone, the, it's often the tricky stage is you know, you know what you want the narrator to sound like, you know what you want the narrator to say, you know what's going to happen in the book, because I'm, I'm a planner, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that person. Um, but you can't actually hear them. You can't, and my first book, um, it's about a, a crazed foodie, um, uh, and it's, he, he, he says it's a cookbook, and then you actually realize it's a story, and then you realize it's a murder story, Dutch pleasure. Um, and he's a crazed food snob and obsessive, and also a serial killer, murders nine people in the course of the book. Um, and when it, by the way, when it came out, the, the question, the single question I was asked vastly more often than any other was, is it autobiographical? <laughs> Um, and I still, like 23 years later, I still haven't worked out an answer to that. But the thing about him, because I knew, um, I knew what he had to sound like, because you had to believe him when he's talking about food. He says, okay, so that's who he is. He's an obsessive figure. And then as it gets darker, you have to kind of believe the darkness. So there was almost, almost like an algebraic formula. He had to fill, there's all these different things that his voice had to do. So I knew that, but I couldn't, couldn't kind of pick it up. I couldn't pick, I just couldn't hear him. And, um, and, and I spent ages trying to sort of get his voice. And then one afternoon, I was try, sort of sitting at my desk and then had this sentence pop into my head. There is an erotics of dislike. And then there's a paragraph about how, this, about how dislike has a particular kind of emotional texture of its own. And it was suddenly like, I it was like tuning in a radio. I suddenly tuned in the radio. I could hear it. And after that, it went, you know... It, that basically the book wrote it, more or less wrote itself after that. I'd kind of picked up the frequency and I could do it. And so that's the thing with voice books. It's that bit is the hard bit. And in this case, I got it very early because I got the first sentence, which is, it's cold on the wall. And with a, a, a voiced book, that f the first sentence is often incredibly important. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 100 Years of Solitude um, the first sentence of that, I can't remember it exactly, but it's something like, as he stood in front of the firing squad, that after, the, as he stood in front of the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia remembered the afternoon his father had taken him to see ice. And Marcus said that took as long as the rest of the book. And because, but by then he got it, he tuned in the radio, and the rest of the book came. And in this case, I was lucky. It's cold on the wall, came very, very early. And I sort of... Um, you know, I, I tuned in the radio station. So I knew that was the main challenge, and it also was one that kind of sort of solved itself very early on. There was a chap there. Thank you very much. Um, I was interested to hear your remarks at the beginning about this genre, um, which has come to be called cli-fi. Uh, and it is indeed a, a genre that um, is being written about and is being written in, and I, I think that your book is very much one of those. One of the other things that seems to be happening is that people are looking back at books that have been published in the past and trying to sort of, as it were, appropriate them for this, for this genre. And one book that came to my mind as I was reading yours, which I enjoyed enormously, by the way, was uh, J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World. Yeah. And I wondered if, I'm sure you, you know the book, and I wondered if that was in your mind as well as you were writing The Wall? It, not consciously, um, though I, I have read it and do, do love it. I'm a huge admirer of Ballard. Um, 
odd, a, a super weird fact is my godfather was interned in Shanghai with the Ballards. Um, my grandparents were interned in Hong Kong and knew lots of people. In and um, he, I, I barely knew him, but um, my godfather, because he stayed in Hong Kong his whole life. Um, but he, and he'd gone blind, but he had someone, a, a kind of a housekeeper coming. He had, he had the housekeeper read Empire of the Sun to him. And his line is, I, I knew Jim, because the father was also called Jim. I knew Jim Ballard. It wasn't a bit like that. You know. I thought it was missing the point about as spectacular, because his parents were there all along. He was missing the point about as spectacular as you can, because the parents' absence from that book is actually what it felt like. There were no adults. The adults had all had gone. Um, so no, um, I, I do love the dram world. I, it wasn't um, directly in my mind, but I, I think what I, what my new line on influences, so I've been thinking about it because I've been being asked, is that in a funny way, if you notice them, you take them out. If you catch yourself being influenced by something, you take it out. So in a sense, the only influences in books are ones that you don't know are there, which is a version of a theory that... Um, I've heard floated, I don't know if you know this one, about the, the only books you can remember are the ones you haven't read. <laughs> Do you know this one? Because if you've read it, you have permission to forget it. So it's like if you said to me now, if John said to me now, I have to write a thousand words on Clarissa. I could, compl I could totally do that. Longest novel in English, epistolary novel, rape culture, proto-feminism, you know, blah, 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 blah. No problem. But if you asked me to write a thousand words on Tom Jones, which I have read, I couldn't, I wouldn't know where to begin because I'd just completely forgotten it. Um, and the only, in fact, the only thing I can remember from Tom Jones is the scene where they erotically eat the chicken, which is from the film. It's not in the book. Um, and I think something like that, something like that is true of influences, that the, the only ones that are there, the, the main ones that are there are ones you don't know about. I think we've time for one more question, if there is one. Yes, there's a lady there. Hello. Um, you've spoken a little bit about Brexit. I just want to ask you, do you think the effects on the economy are going to be similar to that of the banking crisis or worse? Well, uh, they could well be, but you know, the, the, the thing that's so weird about Brexit, beyond... Um, uh, I wasn't that astonished by the result because I thought it was always much closer than people th thought, um, partly because it's stupid to ask people a question which is effectively, are you happy with the government? You know. <laughs> And the EU, the EU always loses the first referendum. They lost it in France, Ireland, Denmark. You know. um, I think the thing that's properly astonishing is, so if you can imagine a version of Rip, Rip Van Winkle, 24th June 2016, he says, what's, what happened? And you tell him the result, and he faints. And then he woke up today and said, what happened? And there'd be two ways of answering that question. You could show them 500 printed out newspaper articles about, you know, each one shouting louder than, louder than the last one about the amazing development that had just happened that day. That your May says this, Barnier says this, astonishing new development, as, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg does the other. You know, or the other way of answering that would be to say, nothing. <laughs> and Rick Van Winkle would say, well, no, 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 I mean, just on this, you know, what's the future of the EU's relationship with the UK, our most important economic relationship, our closest partner, our vital security interest. So what's happened about that? Just nothing. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> Search me. And that's the thing that is properly... That's the thing that is the most astonishing thing that I've seen in my adult lifetime in, in politics and public life, to have... <coughs> act with, that we're actually no clearer knowing. Um... And I think it's a failure of governance on a, on a scale that I, I, you know, I could just couldn't have imagined. I didn't think the British state was capable of failing on, on quite that scale. So the answer to your question is, um, I have absolutely no idea, because I have absolutely no idea where the process is going to end. I mean, um, it's, just, it's beyond words, beyond words bizarre. And, I, I'm, and part, a big part of it, is, you know, we wait all this time for the most incompetent prime minister in modern British history, and then, like buses, two came along at once. 
I lied. We have time. For, we'll, we'll take lady there and the lady there. But we'll take them together, I think, is probably easiest at this point. Right. Actually, let's do it the other way around. It's, it makes more sense logistically. So it's lady just there. That's, oh. uh, mine is a, a tiddly little question. The Peeps Road in Capital, is that Peeps Road in Wimbledon? No, it's not. Okay. It, I thought that um, it's meant to be, it's because it's ba broadly speaking based in Clapham, the book. And Peeps, when Samuel Peeps retired from the Admiralty, he moved to a sleepy village just outside the city of London called Clapham. So it was meant to be a very, um, it was meant to be a subtle in-joke to the two people in the world who cared or knew about Peeps being in Clapham. And I didn't bother to check because nothing, in, everything in London is named, or everything in Britain, is named after defunct aristocrats who never did anything except sit on their estates and shoot pheasants. I thought, there won't be a peeps road. Of course there won't be a peeps road. And actually, in fact, there are two. There's one in Tooting and there's one somewhere else. So just, that's just a straightforward cock-up on my part. <laughs> and lady there. I, I was wondering if you were actually hoping to influence people's actions at all by, by your your book, and how does one balance a sort of need to scare the bejesus out of them with the fact that nobody wants to listen if you do that? It's as I'm constantly trying to scare the bejesus out of people, and they are not interested. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very glad you asked me that question, um, as Harold Wilson used to say. Um, no, um, <laughs> I, I do, I do want, want that. I mean, uh, I suppose, you know, the simple way of putting my ambition for the book is to be wrong. I don't want this world to ha happen. I don't want us to end up there. I think we have a moral obligation for it not to happen. But the, the sequence I was imagining was, was to try and make it clear what the unthinkable thing we're doing is, to make it, to make it thinkable as a way of realising we have to stop it. And I think... I think we have a moral obligation to be optimistic. Um, I, think, I think optimism is very, very important because if we're pessimistic, we'll despair, and despair will lead to inaction, and inaction will guarantee that this, hor mm. this world of pure horror comes about. But, and it, and it would be one thing, if the science said that's what's happening, we're doomed, that would be one thing. But the fact is that's not what the science says. The IPCC conference in Katowice at the end of last year says that we can keep the world to 1.5 degree of warming, which isn't paradise. It leaves the ocean warming for centuries still to come. But even the difference between that and two degrees, which was the Paris target, is, as the UN says, that's tens of millions of lives saved from catastrophic negative impacts. Each tenth of a degree has enormous consequences for the global poor. Uh, for, for decades, for centuries still to come. And the science says we can avert the worst, the worst of it if we act now collectively and at scale. And I deeply believe in that project. And, and I, I hope, I wish, that the process of imagining it is, is a precursor to stopping it. For me, that's the whole point, is to stop it. I think optimism is a fantastic note to end on. Um, just a couple of housekeeping points. John will be just outside signing copies of The Wall, I believe. Um, also, while we're predicting the future, I predict that many of you fine people in this audience are going to go over to the old Divinity School where you will see the New Statesman's official stand where you can subscribe for 12 issues for just £12. And with that, please join me in putting my hands together for John Lanchester. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Elledge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to the show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.